0: For reading, well, friends, there's an outline in your bulletins that you might want to grab open to help you follow along. Maybe jot a few notes down. We're going to have a Q&A at the end, but as you'll see, this is an enormous topic, and um, well, we'll see where we we'll see where the questions and comments take us. But that's okay if there's lots of you might have a, might have one that's playing on your mind after what we've talked about and it's not directly related that's okay to bring it up at the end if you want to all right how about i pray for us and then uh, i'll tell you about where we're heading today let's pray father we do thank you for your word to us we thank you for the gift of church Uh, we can come together and freely uh, read your word and focus on it and hear from you we pray that we'd put your words into practice Um, help us with our understanding today and, uh, and guide us in your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's the topic. Uh, men and women in the Bible. In one sermon. Fat chance, you say. You're right. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Yep. Um, I, don't, I don't know if i Should I give up now? No, I'm not going to do that. Today's really a bit of a teaser. That's what it is. It's a bit of a. Uh, it's to get you thinking and get you reading. Uh, not only reading the Bible, but reading a good Christian book. And here it is. This excellent book by Rebecca uh, McLaughlin. So here it is. It's called uh, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. It is excellent. Uh, I've, I reckon it would be in my top three Christian books to read on my shelf. And if you've seen my shelf, there's quite a few books there. So it's really good. I really place it up as a high... Uh, Excellent book to read. Um, She's an excellent author. She's she's written a number of books too. And Teenagers, you guys in the front there and a few others there, she's written a a book also that is similar to this but on a level for teenagers. And um, I can't remember the name of it. Anyone help me out, Michelle? We just read it the other day. It's something similar to that. Yeah, it's something similar. Yeah, anyway. Well, if you're keen. Yeah. But it's really good, and it's, it's also less reading as well. So I highly recommend that. Okay, this is an excellent book, and it's also got an excellent chapter on men and women in the Bible. And so today, well, it's actually on men and women in the Bible, um, in the church, in Christianity. So this book's aim, and likewise our aim this morning over the next sort of 25 minutes or so, is um, it, we're not trying to be controversial, although some controversial things might come up. But the aim is not really to do that. and It's her aim as well. It's simply to give an answer um, to questions that many people throw at Christianity. Really, the aim of the book and the aim of this morning too in some ways is to be prepared to give an answer to everyone um, who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have from 1 Peter 3. So that's sort of where we're, where we're going and trying to do. So this, um, some of the other questions in this book, other uh, chapters, are uh, aren't we better off without religion? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Isn't Christianity homophobic? How could a loving God send people to hell? They're, they're really important questions, aren't they? And there's more, too. I've just mentioned a few there. Like it or not, these are the questions that your neighbour, that your friend at work, uh, that you yourself might be grappling with. Uh, and they're questions that be, that people are accusing Christians of. Uh, that we are, uh, let me get it, that we, we are um, homophobic, that we are sending people, what well, God sends people to hell and so forth. Uh, now, the chapter I'm using today, in one sense, I really, what I, I'm reviewing it. It's a bit of a book review. So a bit of a different morning this morning, not our usual um, type of looking through a passage of scripture. We'll do that next week. We've got a one-off on Jude. So very small book, you might have to look up the table of contents to find it, it is there, it's just before Revelation, very small, and then we start a series on Ephesians. But today's a bit of a book review, uh, and in the, I'm reviewing her chapter, now her chapter is entitled, Doesn't Christianity Denigrate Women? Now I didn't use that as a title for this sermon because, I don't know, as a man, I just felt like, I felt, a, it, I felt it was a little patronising to me to get up there get up and and, and talk about um, this topic like like that uh, and anyway I, I'm adding a bit and also leaving some these out of the chapter and it didn't really help to use that title but that's the title I'm reviewing in this book I want to give you a taste um, I'm talking more speaking about more general things but I want to give you a taste to go and read more so here's the first heads up about the book uh, a bit of a warning I guess she loves Harry Potter I don't. Uh, I haven't read the books. I I've I watched one of the movies and I fell asleep. So that's my experience with Harry Potter. Anyway, so much so that she begins this chapter that we're sort of reviewing. She uses a Harry Potter illustration, and I I started reading it through and I thought, oh no, I got no idea what she's talking about. So much so that what I had to do, I had to go and get Beck. Beck loves Harry Potter. So I sat down with Beck for an hour, and she managed to talk about. She managed to summarise Harry Potter for me in like half an hour, the whole thing. <laughs> How good's that? So I know about Harry Potter. I got it all down. It's so no worries. Um, you actually don't need to know Harry Potter to understand her illustrations, and you'll get that in a moment. It's okay. So she she begins like that. Um, I'm going to read to you the first uh, first little paragraph uh, of her of this chapter. I'll do my best. Here we go. I try that the pronunciations are a bit tricky, but I think I've got it right. I've been practicing with Beck. At a pivotal moment in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, that probably means something to you. um, That's one of the books. (laughs) Yeah, all right, (laughs) good. Professor Dumbledore makes a poignant request. Severus, please. Up to this point, we do not know whether Severus Snape is a double agent for Dumbledore or for the murderous antagonist Voldemort. Now Snape's loyalty is tested. Dumbledore, surrounded by enemies, pleads for help and Snape kills him. Sorry, uh, spoiler alert. (laughs) Oops. Oh, well. (laughs) Haven't seen it by now. It's too too slow. Um, (laughs) The scene is devastating. We never liked Snape, but now beyond hope that he was Dumbledore's man, now Snape's betrayal of his mentor is complete. It is not until Harry Potter, uh, not until the last Harry Potter book that we realise how wrong we were. When Harry extracts, extracts memories from Snape's dying mind and pours them into the magical pensieve where one can dive into another's past, we discover that Snape's love for Harry's mother, Lily, was the guiding principle of his life. We see Snape's anguish as Lily is murdered by Voldemort, and how Snape henceforth commits himself to Dumbledore. Dumbledore tells Snape that he is dying from the slow working of an irreversible curse, and we hear Snape reluctantly pledge to kill him when the moment comes. Suddenly, we see Dumbledore's plea and Snape's actions in a new light. When we know the beginning and the end of the story, The meaning of severus, please, is reversed. Now, to some of you, you'll you'll be all over that. You'll be thinking, I understand that completely. What a great illustration. For others, you'll be going, like me, what? (laughs) Um, So let me tell you what she's saying in my words. You see, the um, the point is that she wants to make, the point she wants to make, I think it's a good one, is that to understand the Christian account of male and female we must gaze into the pensive of the whole Bible. We need to see the big picture. Now you might be thinking, why didn't you say at why just say that start? I just say that. Well, you know, because I want you to enjoy it now. We we want to see the big picture. That's what we want to see. The panorama of salvation history, the beginning and the end. When we do that, the biblical view of men and women becomes much clearer. That's the point she was making. Okay. So and for the Harry Potter fans, she writes, as with Snape. The key to understanding the Bible's view of men and women is a story of relentless love. Get it? That's what Snape was as well. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Sex in creation. The beginning of the Bible tells us that God creates humanity in his image, in his likeness. We read that from um, Genesis chapter 1. And we're created to rule, we're created to relate, we're created to create. 1 John 4 actually tells us that God is a relational God, that God is love. You see, God could not be imaged by a solitary human being. And so God's image-bearers, God's image emerges from our relationships. Now Genesis 2, uh, in Genesis 2 I should say, this point is reinforced. I've got a fair bit up there. See if you can see where I'm, where I'm looking at. But verse 18, uh, God forms the man out of dust and breathes life into him and puts him to work in the garden. Then God says, look at this, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, you might remember the constant refrain in Genesis 1 was that his creation was good. Remember that? And then humans were created and that was very good. But here, verse 18, something is not good. And that should shock us a little bit. We should, oh, hold on, what's not good? In other words, the man cannot image God on his own. He needs a helper. He needs a helper in relationship. Remember, God is relational. As image bearers, we, we, we bear his image in relationships. But being a helper, by the way, is not a subordinate, inferior role We know this because in the Old Testament, the word for helper is often applied to God himself. Now, there's more to learn from these early chapters of Genesis about the connection between man and woman. It comes from the strange description of God making woman out of the man's side. Uh, The woman is born out of man's bone and flesh of his flesh. So, in other words, they're different, born out of, but they're also fundamentally linked So in Genesis 21 to 23 explains that. But let's go down to the next verse, 24. It's right down the bottom there. Hopefully you can see that. I'll read it out to you anyway. This next verse hammers home this equal but different view of men and women. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And so that one flesh is a reference to to, to the sexual side of the married relationship. And so sex joins a man and woman in intimate relationship as they become fruitful and multiply. So again, here's how McLaughlin puts it. Uh, I've got this up on the screen too for us too. So, the God uh, who exists in utter intimacy with love across difference at the core of his being creates image bearers who are of the same essence but different and calls them into one flesh unity. Okay. But in Genesis 3... Things go wrong. This is point two over outline, if you're following along. Uh, broken love. So rather than applying God's rule to creation, the man and the woman break the only rule they were given. You might remember that rule if you read a bit of Genesis 1. Do not eat from the, knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, here's what happens. The man is commanded not to eat from the tree before the woman is actually created, and God warns him, if he does, he's going to die. Now, when the mysterious snake approaches the woman to question God's words, we wonder, where's the man gone? Where's the, where is he? Well, the answer is he's right there with her. He's right there with her. But rather than speaking against the snake's lies, he eats the fruit as well, doesn't he? This, this disobedience breaks their relationship with God and with each other, so uh, innocence and intimacy is replaced by shame and blame. Instead of life, there's death. The man and the woman are cursed by God—that's the word the Bible uses—and in Genesis three, tells us uh, that. And that curse affects the roles they were given in Genesis one. So, for example, ruling over creation uh, is is made hard. By the curse on the man. The man has to work hard for his food, right? Has to work hard. Multiplying is made hard by the curse on the woman. In fact, the woman is not only cursed with pain in childbirth but also um, told in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. So the word here for desire communicates a will to possess and master. In other words, it's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. So gone is the united, unashamed love story. And now there's conflict and a power struggle. The result of rebellion, not God's original design. And so as we keep on reading through our Old Testaments, we see that as a result is the appalling treatment of women by men and vice versa. Uh, Rape and murder and exploitation. The Bible doesn't endorse this. It's just a, it just reports it. It's a realistic picture of how we treat each other and, and um, how we use power. So how does the rest of the story make sense of what Genesis says about men and women in marriage? Uh, that's where McLaughlin takes us to next in the chapter. So let me tell you a bit about that. Um, we're on point three of our outline, the love song of God for his people. As we read in the Bible, in our Bibles, we find God's covenant, that's God's promise to his people, Um, pictured as a marriage so Isaiah 54 verse 5 for your maker is your husband the Lord Almighty is his name but as we keep reading on uh, we find this is not a happy marriage God's people are unfaithful to him by worshipping idols yet God remains faithful he desires the love and devotion of, of this people and he hates it when they give themselves to other gods might want to read Hosea. Got a bit of chance, a bit of time this week, 14 chapters. Uh, read Hosea. Uh, 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 God's love is jealous talks about, which is the appropriate reaction of a loving husband to a cheating wife. But it's also forgiving. God has every right to reject his people, but he wants them back. A renewed covenant is pictured as a reconciling husband and wife. Now we'll come back to that thought in a moment. But this marriage between God and his people never seems to hit it off. Uh, it never seems to work. The Old Testament keeps raising the question without giving really giving the full answer: how can the holy faithful, love-filled God live with this loveless, faithless, sin-filled people? Well, point four in an outline <laughs> the bridegroom comes. Jesus is the living. Fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. In Jesus, the covenant of God is renewed, uh, with his people is renewed. A new covenant made perfect by the blood of Jesus, by the cross. Now in Luke 5, when asked why his disciples do not fast, Jesus replies, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Uh, And John the Baptist continues this metaphor in John 3.29. This was read to us earlier. The bridegroom belongs, sorry, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. So where God was husband to his wandering people in the Old Testament, Jesus, who is the ultimate image of the invisible God, steps into history as the, the groom as a groom uh, <coughs> sorry as, as I say that again actually because that's not quite right so where God was husband to his wandering people in the Old Testament Jesus who is the ultimate invis- image of the invisible God steps into history as the bridegroom see what I mean so he, he is the perfect people of God Jesus is uh, McLaughlin gives this illustration like a power line grounded in Jesus this metaphor returns in the New Testament letters we, after Jesus death and resurrection but before we get to those New Testament letters we read we need to spend some time in the Gospels and look at Jesus relationship with women that's where she goes to next so women in the Gospels the, the key word here is countercultural that's the word uh, and it's in Luke's gospel I think that this sort of countercultural Jesus stands out most clearly but you could also argue it's in John and Matthew and Mark as well In a patriarchal world where women are second-class citizens, Jesus lifts them up to equal standing. I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, McLaughlin gives quite a few more. So prior to Jesus' birth, the focus is on Mary, who is put up as a picture of faithfulness, whereas Zachariah, you might remember Zachariah, John the Baptist's father, well, not so much. Um, He's punished for his unbelief following the angel Gabriel's visit to him. Another example, the adult Jesus continually weaves women into his sermons, uh, something unheard of for a rabbi in the day. One example among many is Luke 18 and the persistent widow who keeps coming back to the the judge. Um, It's about persistence in prayer. And Jesus uses an example of a widow. A widow. Widows were not the subject of public discussion. But here's Jesus raising the profile of, of a woman like that. Uh, Jesus challenges society's treatment of women. Even as he approaches his crucifixion, what does Jesus do? He stops to talk to women as they're mourning on the way to the cross. In a male dominated culture, his attention to women throughout his preaching is remarkable. And this continues in Jesus' healing. There's, there's Simon's mother in law, there's the raising of the widow's son, there's the bleeding woman and the synagogue ruler's daughter. Jesus' elevation of women as moral examples is even more striking. Take the example of Luke where Jesus is dining um, at Simon the Pharisee's house. Remember this scene. So he, Jesus is dining at Simon the Pharisee's house and a sinful woman, we're told, interrupts, crashes the party. Uh, a sinful woman is really code for uh, ba- basically a woman with with who, a sexual unfaithfulness, probably a prostitute. Anyway, she crashes the party. It's a bit of a <gasps> moment, right? She weeps on Jesus' feet. She gets down on her hands and knees and literally prostrate on the ground. She weeps on Jesus' feet. She wipes them, her feet, his feet, uh, wipes them with her hair and then anoints them with expensive perfume. Now, Simon, Simon, of course, is appalled, isn't he? Surely if Jesus were a prophet, surely if Jesus were a prophet, right, he'd know this woman is utterly... Unworthy of touching him. But Jesus turns the expectations of those at the party sitting around that big table, he turns their expectations upside down. He holds this woman up in his example to follow, and he shames Simon. Totally the other around. You see, in cultural terms, Simon had every advantage. He was a man, she was a woman. He was religiously admired, he's a Pharisee, right? She was despised. He's hosting a dinner party in a fancy house. She is a weeping prostrate, lying on the floor, embarrassment. But according to Jesus, she surpassed Simon on every single count. We're going to read a bit more. Uh, Luke 7, 36 to 50. But there there were, of course, some Jesus' female disciples, uh, not part of the 12, but who were there with Jesus serving him and in, in for the long haul. Luke is not the only gospel to elevate women, of course, way above the standards of the day. Uh, in John, there's a there's a great in John chapter four. I was reading this with Bible study just the other night. Um, uh, Jesus shocks his disciples. He shocks his disciples by crossing ethnic, uh, religious, gender, and moral boundaries. What does he do? He's talking with a sexually compromised. Um, Samaritan woman. Uh, totally countercultural for him to do that. And so his disciples are shocked by it. And in the end, this woman becomes this great evangelist to her town. Read John Full. I'll leave it there. You just need to open your Gospels. Read through one of the Gospels and read it through with the framework in your mind of what does Jesus have to say to women? And why is that so radically different? And what does that say to to us today about um, God's views of men and women? Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for a personal relationship with them. Okay, well, next, McLaughlin asked this great question. It's a really cool quote. I hope you enjoy it like I did. (laughs) Is Jesus' life and ministry... An oasis of equality in a desert of biblical misogyny. How's that for a quote? <laughs> <laughs> what? But a fair question, because next, there's the offence of the marriage metaphor. Here's McLaughlin again, and I've got it up in the sc- on the screen. When the marriage metaphor first refuses, comes back together with human marriage, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, it strikes us as... Harry Potter fans will love this. As Snape muttering magic under his breath during Harry's first Quidditch match. Now, Quidditch is a game they play. You got that? Okay, good. Um, We think it's a curse when, in fact, it's a protective charm. Okay, let's see how that works out. Um, I'm going to read from um, Ephesians 5, verse 20. Well, I'll go from 21, then we'll come in there at 22. 21 says, Submit yourselves to one another um, out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, for many women uh, and for some men, these are difficult words. And as McLaughlin confessed at one point in her life, these are repulsive words. She had, prob- she had, well, she had three problems with uh, this particular part of the Bible and this teaching. The first was that wives should submit. Uh, women are just as competent, uh, competent as men. Surely competency in decision making should have a say here. Right? Second, and again she's not alone, uh, was the idea that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So she writes, It is one thing to submit to Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificing king of the universe. It's another to offer that kind of submission to a fallible, sinful man. Fair. Third, her third problem was that the idea that the husband was the head of the wife, which seemed to imply some sort of hierarchy, and she, uh, she explains that in the, um, in, in the chapter, but that clashes, you see, with the equal status, status as image bearers of God. Right? It seems to conflict... With the countercultural power inversion message of the gospel that we were talking about a moment before, where the creator lays down his life, where the poor outclass the rich, where uh, out uh, and outcasts become family, it's that power inversion, <laughs> countercultural thing of the gospels. The gospel was a consuming fire of love across difference to burn up racial injustice and socio-economic exploitation. She writes. Jesus had elevated women to an equal status with men. Paul, it seemed, had pushed them down. Now, <laughs> what I want to read to you, I want to read to you uh, McLaughlin's next couple paragraphs. Uh, personally, I like the idea of a, of a woman sharing her story about this part of the Bible and, and her journey that she's gone through. Um, I'm going to jump in and make a couple comments as well, but pretty much I'm reading her her story, and I think it's pretty cool. Uh, and the way she's, um, she's a very smart woman um, and the way she explains it. So, it's not too long. Um, I'll read this little section. So, at first I tried to explain the shock away. I tried, for instance, to argue that in the Greek, the word translated submit appears only in the previous verse. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. So, the test, so the rest of the passage must imply mutual submission. But... The command for wives to submit occurs three times in the New Testament, in Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3, while husbands are called four times to love in uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, and once to honor their wives in 1 Peter 3. Indeed, when I trained my lens on the command to husbands, the Ephesians passage started to come into focus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's from Ephesians 5.25. How did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, by giving himself, naked and bleeding, to suffer for her, by putting her needs above his own, by sacrificing everything for her. I asked myself, how would I feel if this were the command to wives? Wives, love your husbands to the point of death putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. Now, let's press pause for a minute there in her story. Um, see, friends, th- there, there are some men who use Ephesians 5.22 as a mandate for abuse. Uh, that is a tragic misuse of these verses. And the command to husbands as well, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, and that, that command to husbands makes that reading as a mandate for abuse, impossible. Uh, I want to be very clear, As whenever I get the chance and it's in context, um, I like to be very, very clear that there is no room for, in Christian marriage, or I think in any marriage, for any form of abuse, whether that's physical, whether that's emotional, whether that's financial, whether that's spiritual, there's no room for it in Christian marriage whatsoever. Um, and you've misunderstood and misread um, Ephesians 5, 22 twenty. Okay, let's go back to her story. So there's just her her sharing about the journey she went on. Uh, When I realized the lens for this teaching was the lens of the gospel itself, it started to make sense. If the message of Jesus is true, no one comes to the table with rights. The only way to enter is flat on your face. Male or female, if we grasp at our right to self-determination, We must reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. And while Christians are certainly called to sacrifice in response to Christ, we are primarily called to accept his sacrifice for us. With this lens in place, I saw that God created sex and marriage as a telescope to give us a glimpse of his star-sized desire for intimacy with us. Our roles in this great marriage are not interchangeable. Jesus gives himself for us. Christians, male or female, follow his lead. Ultimately, my marriage is not about me and my husband any more than Romeo and Juliet is about the actors playing the title roles. We need to see that Christian marriage, at its best, points us to a much greater reality, that telescope idea, and that actually relieves the pressure not just for married couples, but I think for singles also. It takes the pressure off single people. We live in a world where sexual and romantic fulfilment are put up as the ultimates in life. You know, you hear the message all the time. Miss out on sex, we are told, and you miss out on life. Don't buy the lie. But in the Christian framework, uh, again quoting McLaughlin. Missing marriage and gaining Christ is like missing out on playing with dolls as a child but growing up to have a real baby. Now, that was her experience as a child. In the book, she describes her upbringing. And she's a bit of a tomboy, and she didn't dress up in pink or anything like that. Um, she didn't play with dolls. Uh, she did other things. So that's the point she's making. It also takes the pressure off married people. Of course, we have the challenge of living out our responsibilities and trusting each other, in that, but we shouldn't sit around worrying whether we've married the right person. Why are or why our marriages are not bringing us to a state of nirvana every day? <laughs> it leaves us longing for more, and that longing points us to the ultimate reality of which the best marriage is a scale model. Okay, I think times we've had enough there. Times time has gone away from us. I could keep going, but I won't. Um, uh, read the chapter, read the book it's on sale at the moment at all good bookstores for 20 bucks, how good's that? the link is in your news. go and get it um, and I've got no personal investment by the way in the publishing or anything on like that um, <laughs> she goes on to talk about gendered roles which is really helpful um, uh, speaking about uh, the, the stereotypes of gendered roles so I touched on that a bit with pink and boys playing uh, girls playing with dolls and stuff um, but she says things much more deeply than that uh, she talks about women in church, uh, Christianity and women's rights. She also gives a page and a half, about two pages on abortion. Obviously, that's a much bigger question, um, but that, that little bit section is really helpful too. I, I hope this just gives you a bit of a taste, a bit of a teaser to dig a bit more. Um, if you've got a question, you're welcome to ask it as well in a moment. Uh, but I hope it gives you the encouragement to go and buy the book and read it. It's a really good book. I really, I really can't say that enough to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who gives you uh, the reason for the hope that you have. How about we pray? And uh, we'll see if anyone's got any questions or comments, and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Uh, we thank you that you're a good God who loves us. Uh, we, we thank you that the gift of marriage and singleness actually points us um, to the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, help us to do that. Uh, help us to understand that. We thank you that, that um, our marriages are just a, a little bit of a, uh, an, in, an insight, that telescope idea of, of the cross. But Lord, we pray that um, help us to understand uh, what, what you say to us about men and women in the Bible and in Christianity and give us the right words when this sort of thing comes up, uh, when we're challenged by, um, by our friends and neighbours and workmates on this question. Uh, We thank you for this book as well. Thank you for the good resource that it is. In Jesus' name, amen.